Section 28 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter 8, Part 3, Venice, by Horatio Brown. With the closing of the Great Council and the establishment of the Council of Ten, the Venetian constitution reached its maturity. Some slight developments, such as the evolution of the three inquisitori de stato of the esecuto contra alia bestemia and the camerlenghi, took place, it is true. But on the whole, the form was fixed, and it stood thus. 1. The Great Council contained the whole body politic. Out of it were elected almost all the chiefs officers of state. At first, it possessed legislative and even some judicial powers, but these were gradually delegated to the Senate, or the Ten, as the Council became immanageable in size, until at last it was left with hardly any attributes, save its original chief function, that of the electorate of the state. 2. Above the Great Council came the Senate, consisting nominally of a 120 members, not including the Doge, his Council, the judges of the Supreme Court, and many other officials, who sat ex officio and raised its numbers higher. The Senate was the great legislative body in the state. It also had the chief direction of ordinary foreign affairs and of finance. It declared war, made peace, received dispatches from ambassadors, and sent instructions. It possessed a certain judicial authority which, however, was seldom exercised. 3. Parallel with the Senate, but outside the main lines of the Constitution, came the Council of Ten. It had been established as a committee of public safety to meet a crisis, and to supply a defect in the Constitution, the want of a rapid, secret, executive arm. Its efficiency and rapidity led to a gradual substitution of the Ten for the Senate upon many important occasions. An order of the Ten was as binding as a law of the Senate. Ambassadors reported secretly to the Ten, and the instructions of the Ten would carry more weight than those of the Senate. The judicial functions of the Ten were far higher than those of the Senate, and indeed in its capacity as a permanent committee of public safety and guardian of public morals, there were few departments of government or of private life where its authority would have been disallowed. 4. Above both Senate and Ten came the Cabinet, or Collegia. It was composed of the civi or ministers, the six savi grandi, the three savi de terra firma, the three savi aglia ordinari, the secretaries of finance, of war, and of marine. The savi grandi took their functions in turn, week and week about. All business of state passed through the hands of the collegia and was prepared by them to be submitted to the great council, the senate, or the ten, according to the nature and importance of the matter. The collegio was the initiatory body in the state and also the executive arm of the Maggior Consiglio and the Senate. The Ten, as we have stated, possessed an executive of its own in three chiefs. 5. Above the collegio came the lesser council, composed of the six ducal councillors, immediately connected with the doge, both supervising him and representing him in all his attributes. The doge could do nothing without his council, a majority of the council could perform all the ducal functions without the presence of the doge. 
6. At the head of all came the doge himself, the point of greatest splendor, though not of greatest weight, the apex of the constitutional pyramid. He embodied and represented the majesty of the state. His presence was necessary everywhere, in the great council, in the senate, in the ten, in the college. He was the voice of Venice, and in her name he replied to all ambassadors. As a statesman long practiced in affairs and intimately acquainted with the political machinery of the Republic, he could not fail to carry weight by his personality, and at a crisis the election of a doge, as in the case of Francesco Foscari, or, later still, as in the case of Leonardo Donate, might determine the course of events. But, theoretically, he was a symbol, not a factor in the Constitution, the outward and visible sign of all that the oligarchy meant. Such was the Venetian Constitution, which, thanks to its efficiency and strength, commanded the admiration and the envy of Europe, and enabled Venice to assume that high place among the nations which was hers during the 15th century. The 15th century is the period of greatest splendor in the history of the Republic. Mature in her constitution, and with a dominion firmly established by sea and land, Venice presented a brilliant spectacle to the eyes of Europe. Yet, this period contains the germs of her decadence. Supreme in the Mediterranean by the defeat of Genoa, Venice was almost immediately called upon to face the Turks and to wear herself out in a long and single-handed contest with their growing power. Firmly planted on the mainland, the Republic discovered that, with jealous neighbors around her and frontiers to be attacked, she could not stand still. She was compelled to advance and found herself exposed to all the dangers implied in the use of mercenary arms and committed to that policy of aggression which summoned up against her the League of Cambrai. Her mainland territory was probably a drain on the financial resources of the Republic, not a fountain of wealth. That territory was only acquired and held by paying for costly troops and more costly captains of adventure. It is doubtful whether the revenue derived from the provinces covered the cost of possession and administration. True, on occasion, the Republic applied to her land territories for a loan, as in 1474, when 616,000 ducats were advanced to the government. But the fact remains that the contentment of her mainland possessions was essential to Venetian supremacy, and that this contentment could not be secured if they were heavily taxed. The real wealth of Venice, the wealth which enabled her to adorn the capital and retain her provinces, depended upon the sea. It was derived from her traffic as a great emporium and mart of exchange fed by a large mercantile marine. The state built the ships and let them out to the highest bidder at auction. Every year, six fleets were organized and dispatched, one to the Black Sea, two to Greece and Constantinople, three to the Syrian ports, four to Egypt, five to Barbary and the north coast of Africa, six to England and Flanders. The route and general instructions for each fleet, Muda, were carefully discussed in the Senate. Every officer was bound by oath to observe these instructions and to maintain on all occasions the honor of the Republic. The government prescribed the number of the crew for each ship, the size of the anchors, quality of rope, etc. A compulsory load line was established. New vessels were allowed to load above the line for the first three years, but to a diminishing extent each year. The ships were all built upon government measurements for two reasons. 
First, because ships of identical build would behave in the same way under stress of weather and could more easily be kept together. Secondly, because the councils in distant ports could be sure of keeping a refit of masts, rudders, sails, etc., when they knew the exact build of all Venetian ships which would touch their ports. The ships were convertible from merchantmen to men of war, and this explains to a certain extent how Venice was able to replace her fleet so rapidly after such losses as those of Curzola or Sapienza. The six state fleets are estimated to have numbered 330 ships, with crews to the amount of 36,000 men. Venetian commerce covered the whole civilized world. The city was a great reservoir of merchandise, constantly filled and constantly emptied again, with eastern luxuries flowing westward and western commodities flowing east. Upon export and import alike, the government levied taxes. Tavola dell'entrata e tavola della insida. These, with the salt monopoly and the taxation of the guilds, tanza della milizia, tanza sensibile, furnished the main source of her ordinary revenue, which, in the year 1500, was estimated at 1,145,580 ducats. The importance of the sea in the economy of Venice is obvious, but during the 15th century her naval and commercial sea power both received a fatal blow. Wars with the Turks exhausted her fighting capacity, and the discovery of the Cape Route to the Indies tended to divert the whole line of the world's traffic from the Mediterranean into the Atlantic, out of the hands of the Venetians into the hands of the Portuguese. The century opened, however, with a series of triumphs for the Republic. The development and extension of her land empire continued. Her prestige at sea increased. Dalmatia, which the Republic had surrendered by the Treaty of Turin, was recovered after a struggle, and by 1420 Venice was in possession of the whole of Frueli. Thanks to the mountainous frontier of the province, this acquisition gave the Republic a defensible position toward the east, where she had hitherto been very weak. It largely increased her land empire and whetted her appetite for more. Nor was her achievement by sea less brilliant. The quarrels among the sons of Sultan Bayezid I ended in the concentration of the Ottoman power in the hands of Mohammed, 1413. Venice had no desire to embark on a campaign against the victorious Turk. She hoped to trade with them, not to fight them, and, through her ambassador, Francesco Foscari, a treaty was signed, whereby she believed herself to have secured her colonies from molestation. But Mohammed was not able, even if he desired, to prevent his followers from regarding all Christians as dogs. Treaty or no treaty, they chased some Venetian merchantmen into Negroponte and menaced the island. The Venetian admiral Loridan came to a parley with the Turkish commander at Galapoli, 1416. But while the leaders were in consultation, the crews fell too, and a battle became inevitable. The Venetians were brilliantly victorious, and the Republic secured an advantageous peace, as well as the applause of Europe only too ready to believe that it need not mind about the Turk as long as Venice was there to fight him. But contemporaneously with this fresh expansion of Venice, by the conquest of Frueli and the heightening of her prestige after the victory of Gallipoli, events fraught with grave consequences for the Republic were maturing to the West. 
on the sudden death of Jean Gilazo Vicanti, fourteen o two, his dominions had been seized in partition by his generals. Jean Galizeo's son, Filippo Maria, patiently, slowly, but surely, recovered the Visconti territories. In this task, he was greatly assisted by the military skill of Francesco Bussoni, called Garmagnola from his birthplace near Turin. By 1420, the task was accomplished, and a Visconti was once more lord of Milan, Cremona, Crema, Bergamo, Brescia, and Genoa, as powerful as ever Jean Galeazzo had been, and not one whit less ambitious. Florence took alarm at Visconti's attitude and asked Venice to join her in a league against Milan. The position was a difficult one for the Republic. Filippo Maria was undeniably menacing, and he had a claim, in virtue of his father's conquest, to both Verona and Vicenza, now Venetian territory. On the other hand, Venice was extremely unwilling to embark upon the troubled waters of Italian mainland politics, and to find herself, in all probability, committed to costly mainland campaigns which would consume the wealth she was sweeping in from the sea. The Florentine proposals revealed two parties in the state. The doge Mocenigo and his friends held that it was still possible to avoid a rupture with Visconti, that Venice might remain on good terms with her powerful neighbor and trade with Milan instead of fighting it. Opposed to the doge was Francesco Foscari, head of the party of young Venice in favor of expansion, elated by the recent acquisition of Fruelli. But Mocenigo was dying, and on his deathbed he called the principal statesmen of the Republic about him, and reminded them of the position of the community, which had never been more flourishing. He pointed to the merchant marine, the finest in the world, to the rapid reduction of the national debt, from ten millions to six, to the vast commerce with the territories of the Duke of Milan, which represented 10 million ducats capital with a net profit of 2 millions. He insisted that at this rate, Venice would soon be mistress of the world, but that all might be lost by a rash war. Everything would depend, he said, upon the character of the man who succeeded him. He uttered a solemn warning against Francesco Foscari as a braggart, vainglorious, without solidity, grasping at much, securing little certain to involve the state in war, to waste its wealth, and leave it at the mercy of its mercenary captains. Prophetic words, but powerless to avert the doom they foretold. Foscari was elected, 1423, and instantly set himself to support the Florentine request for an alliance. He did not carry his point at once, for the Mosinico party could always urge that an alliance with Florence against Milan would draw Visconti, and Sigismund together against the Republic. But Filippo Maria's successes were continuous. His troops were in the Romagna, and he had defeated Florence in battle after battle, Zaganara, Valdelomene, Rapallo, Angari. In desperation, the Florentines declared that if the Venetians would not help them to retain their liberties, they would pull the house about their ears. When we refused, they said, to help Genoa, she made Visconti her lord. If you refuse to help us, we will make him king. This threat, coupled with the desertion of Visconti's great general, Carmagnola, turned the scale. The Florentine League was concluded, and Carmagnola received the command of the Venetian forces.
Thus the Republic embarked upon a struggle for supremacy as a land power in northern Italy. But she was soon to prove the truth of Mocenigo's dying words. The first campaign ended in the acquisition of Brescia and the Bresciano by Venetian troops, but not by Carmagnola. He had no sooner brought his forces under Brescia than he asked leave to retire for his health to the baths of Abano, and his conduct from the very first roused those suspicions which eventually led to his doom. The second campaign gave Bragano to the victorious republic, but the suspicions of Venice were increased by finding that the Duke of Milan was in communication with Carmagnola and was prepared to conclude a peace through him as intermediary. Suspicions confirmed by the dilatory conduct of their general after the victory at Maclodio, when nothing lay between him and Milan. At the opening of the third campaign against Visconti, the Republic endeavored to rouse their general to vigorous action by making him large promises if he would only crush the Duke and take his capital. But nothing would stir Carmagnola from his culpable inactivity. The truth was that he cared not a jot for Venetian interests. Like all mercenaries, he was playing his own game, and that did not counsel him to press Visconti too hard, for it was always possible that he might one day find himself again in the Duke's service. The patience of the Republic was exhausted at last. Carmagnola was summoned to Venice on the plea that the government wished to consult him. He was received with marked honor. His suite was told that the general stayed to dine with the Doge and that they might go home. The doge sent to excuse himself from receiving the count on the score of indisposition. Carmagnola turned to go down to his gondola. In the lower arcade of the palace, he was arrested and hurried to prison. He was tried by the Council of Ten on the charge of treason and executed in the Piazzetta of St. Mark, 1432. Notwithstanding their difficulties with their mercenary commander, the Venetians had made very solid acquisitions during these wars with Visconti. Brescia and Bergamo were now permanently added to the land empire of the Republic, and the title was confirmed by an imperial investiture at Prague in 1437, in which Venetian dominions are defined as all the land de qua, that is, east of the Ada, very nearly the extreme limit of mainland possession ever touched by the Republic. But the possession of Brescia and Bergamo was not likely to be left undisputed by Filippo Maria Visconti, and a long series of campaigns, conducted by such generals as Gonzaga and Gattamaletta, exhausted to the treasury and unprofitable to the state, was only brought to an end by the death of the Duke of Milan in 1447. During this period, however, Venice had converted her guardianship of Ravenna into actual possession as remainder heir to the Palantani, lords of that city, a step which brought into the field against her the Roman Curia, and was not without important bearings on the final combination of the papacy with her other enemies at the League of Cambrai. The death of Filippo Maria Visconti left Milan and the Visconti possessions without a lord. Visconti's only child, Bianca, was married to Sforza, and in right of her he claimed succession. But the city of Milan declared itself a republic, Venice seized Lodi and Piacenza and offered to support the Milanese Republic if it would recognize the capture. Milan declined. But that city was soon forced to open its gates to Sforza, 
and shortly afterwards Venice and Sforza came to terms in the Peace of Lodi, 1454, by which the Republic was confirmed in possession of Bergamo and Brescia, and acquired Crema and Treviglio as well, thereby affording her enemies fresh proofs for that charge of insatiable greed which they were already beginning to move against her. But Visconti's death produced another result, still more momentous, not only for Venice, but for all Italy as well. Filippo Maria had left no heirs male, and the French claim, that of the House of Orleans, based upon the marriage of Valentina Visconti with the father of Charles of Orleans, was immediately advanced. It opened a new epoch in Italian history, preparing the way for the complications inseparable from the advent of foreign princes in Italian politics. There were two reasons which induced Venice to accept gladly the Treaty of Lodi. The long war with Visconti, though it had brought her a large accession of territory, had also cost her very dear. But it was of even greater significance that all Europe and Venice, especially as the power most nearly concerned, had been startled by the news that the Turks had captured Constantinople and that the Eastern Empire was at an end forever. This event took place in 1453, the year before the Peace of Lodi. We have seen already that the real desire of the Republic was to trade with the Turks and not to fight them. From the very outset, when she made a treaty with Sultan Mohammed in 1410, and again after the victory of Gallipoli, her whole energies had been directed to securing her colonies and ensuring freedom of traffic. But now, with the Muslims established in Constantinople and spreading down the Levant, it was inevitable that Venice should be brought into hostile relations with their growing power. The fall of Constantinople was the last external event of moment in the brilliant reign of Francesco Foscari. Internal events also contributed to render his doeship remarkable. He seems to have come to the throne as the embodiment of the new oligarchy, which had taken final shape at the closing of the Great Council, and which had consolidated its authority by the creation of the Ten. He was the first doge in whose election the people had no part. In presenting him to his subjects, the old formula, This is your doge, and it please you, was changed to, This is your doge. But furthermore, Foscari's election is the first in which we find any suggestion of bribery. He was accused of having applied, while holding the office of procurator, a sum of money which he found in the coffers of that magistracy, to securing support among the poorer nobility, a class destined to become both famous and dangerous under the name of the Bemaboti, but of whom we hear now for the first time. Political corruption showed itself again in 1433, when a widespread conspiracy to arrange election to offices was discovered among the nobles of the Great Council. The obscure case of Jacopo Fascari, the doge's son, showed to what lengths intrigue might be carried, and the dramatic end of the doge's reign, his deposition after so long and so brilliant an occupation of the throne, demonstrated the absolute authority of the Council of Ten as sovereign in Venice. The epoch was one of great outward splendor. Comines, who came to Venice some years later, describes it as the most triumphant city I have ever seen, the city that bestows the greatest honor on ambassadors and on strangers, the city that is most carefully governed, the city wherein the worship of God is most solemnly conducted, 
It was thus that Venice struck a competent observer towards the close of the 15th century, and Comines is only one of the earliest in a long list of testimonies to the vivid impression created by the capital of the lagoons. Venice was at the zenith of her splendor, a city of pleasure, sumptuous in her reception of ambassadors and strangers, a commonwealth of surprising solidity and power, most carefully governed, a palace of pomp where the arts flourished and where the worship of God, in churches, processions, pageants, was, quote, most solemnly conducted, unquote. Everything connected with the city, external as well as internal, contributed to the indelible impression she produced. Her singular site, her water streets, the beauty of her public and private buildings, the Doge's palace so audaciously designed, glowing with the rose and cream-colored marbles, St. Mark's, a precious casket of porphyry, mosaic and oriental cupolas, the hall of the great council, adorned with records of Venetian prowess, the rich Gothic of the Porta della Carta, the piazza with its noble bell tower, the opening of the piazzetta, the vista of St. Giorgio Maggiore, the suite of the Riva dei Chavoni leading away to San Nicolo in the great sea avenue of Venice, the domestic architecture of the private palaces that line the grand and the smaller canals, the slender columns, the ogee windows, the balconies with their sea for brackets, the perforated stone tracery above the windows, the glowing color of the plaster on the walls, all combined to arrest attention. But more than this, behind the external splendor, and deep down as the cause of it, Venice had something further to offer for the study and the contemplation of the stranger. Her constitution was almost an ideal for European statesmen. Her declared object was to win the heart and the affection of her people, and this could only be brought about by attention to their interests. In the interest of commerce, consuls had been established as early as 1117. In those of finance, public funds, and government stock, it had been created in 1171. In those of order, the census was introduced about the year 1300. In those of property, each holding was numbered and registered. In those of justice, the law was codified in 1229. A factory act forbade the employment of children in dangerous trades where mercury was used. The nautical code provided for a load line on all shipping and insisted on proper treatment of crews. In most departments of practical government, the Republic of Venice preceded all other states of Europe and offered material for reflection to their politicians, to whom was presented the phenomenon of a fully matured and stable constitution and of a people fused together in one homogeneous whole. For though the closing of the Great Council had rendered the governing class a close oligarchy, it had not produced class hatred. Venice showed no trace that the feudal system, with its violent divisions of the state into hostile camps, every Venetian was still a Venetian first and foremost, and though excluded from the functions of government, was still in all likelihood closely connected with those who exercised them. The palace of the patrician was surrounded by a network of small alleys filled with his people, his clients. The merchant prince in his office was served by a staff of clerks who had their share in the success of his ventures. The arrival of any merchant's galleys was a matter for rejoicing to the whole community, 
and was announced by the great bell of St. Mark's. Venice, in short, from the commercial point of view, was a great joint-stock company for the exploitation of the East, and the patricians were its directors. The life of a Venetian noble could be filled to the full if he so desired. Politics, diplomacy, trade, arms were all open to him, and he frequently combined two or more of these professions. At the age of 25, he took a seat in the Great Council and became eligible for any of the numerous offices to which the Council elected. He might serve as apprenticeship in the Department of Trade, of Finance, of Health. Passing thence to the Senate, he might represent his country in Constantinople, Rome, Prague, Paris, Madrid, London. On his return, he would be made a Savio and member of the Cabinet, or serve his turn of a year on the Council of Ten, ending his days perhaps as a doge, at least as procurator of St. Mark. And throughout the whole of this official career, he was probably directing, with the help of his brothers and sons, the movement of his private family business, trade, or banking. Nothing is commoner than to find an ambassador petitioning to be recalled because his family business is suffering through his absence. There was, of course, another aspect of the patrician class. The vicious nobles became poor, the poor corrupt, and political and social life both suffered in consequence. The Council of Ten was frequently called upon to punish the betrayal of state secrets and the unbridled license of the nobility. On the other hand, if the people were excluded from the direction of state affairs, they found abundant scope for their energies in trade and industries and the guild life which these created and fostered. Every art and craft and trade in Venice, down to the very sausage makers, was erected into a guild. They were self-supporting, self-governing bodies, supervised, it is true, by a government office whose approval was necessary for the validity of the bylaws. They were carefully fostered by the state, which saw in them an outlet for the political activities of the people. At his coronation, each new doge was expected to entertain the guilds, who displayed specimens of their handiwork in the ducal palace. On great state occasions, when Venice entertained distinguished guests, the guilds were called upon to furnish part of the pageant, but they never acquired, as in Florence or other Italian cities, a voice in the government of the state. The guilds of most Italian towns represented and protected the people against a nobility of arms and of territory. In Venice, such a nobility never existed, the patrician was himself a merchant and very probably a member of a trade guild. And the decorative and cultured side of all this teeming life found expression in the arts. Murano produced the earliest masters of that school of painting which was to adorn the world by the hands of Vivarini, Carpaccio, the Bellinis, Mantegna, Giorgione, Veronese, Titian, Palma, Sima di Cogliano, Tintoretto, Tipolo. Dramatic in conception, gorgeous in color, untrammeled by the effort to express philosophical ideas or religious emotion, the art of Venice was essentially decorative and was dedicated to the adornment of public and private life in the city. The great colonnade at the Rialto, the very heart of Venetian traffic, was already covered with frescoes and possessed that famous planisphere, or Mappabamondo, showing the routes followed by Venetian commerce throughout the world. The study of letters received a vital stimulus, 
thanks to the asylum which Venice offered to refugees from Constantinople. Cardinal Besseron made St. Mark's Library the legatee of his inestimable treasures. The brilliant history of the Venetian printing press was inaugurated by John of Spire and Windelin, his brother, 1469, by Nicholas Jensen, by Waldorfer and Erhard Radolt, and carried on by Andrea Torresano to the glories of the Aldine Press. Coming third in chronological order, preceded by Sabacchio and Rome, the press of Venice surpassed all its Italian contemporaries in splendor and abundance, in range of subjects, in service to scholarship. Of literature, in the sense of Belletch, there was but little. But the Annual of Malapiero, the Diary of Sanudo, and the Diaries of Prioli afford us a full, vivid, and voracious narrative of Venetian history, of life in the city, of the wars and intrigues of the Republic, during her splendor, and the beginning of her decline, 1457 to 1535. No other Italian state can show such a monumental record of its doings as this. Written by capable men of affairs, the first a soldier, the second an official, the third a great merchant banker, all of whom took a large part in the deeds and events they recount. Written not for publication, but to the honor and glory of that beloved San Marco, whom, to use the phrase of a later Venetian ambassador, each of us has engraved upon his heart written in dialect, racy of the soil and of the people. We have here a story, vigorous, vivacious, humorous, direct and simple, a monument to the city-state that produced it, an illustration of the central principle of Venetian life that the Republic was everything, while her individual sons were of no account. But this appearance of prosperity, of splendor, of pomp, during the latter half of the 15th century, masked the germs of incipient decline, the corruption of the nobles, the suspicious tyranny of the ten, the first signs of bank failures, the drop in the value of funds, the rise of the national debt from six to thirteen millions. Land wars continued to drain the treasury. The Turkish wars, conducted by Venice single-handed, curtailed her Levant trade and entailed a continual outlay. Worst of all, in 1486 came the news that Diaz had discovered the Cape of Good Hope, and, in 1497, that Vasco da Gama had rounded it, thereby cutting the taproot of Venetian wealth, its Mediterranean carrying trade, and drawing the great trade lines of the world out of the Mediterranean into the Atlantic. Venice could alter neither her geographical position nor her policy. She endeavored to come to terms with the Turks, and she continued to expand on the mainland. This course of action brought down upon her the charge of infidelity on the one hand and of insatiable greed on the other, and ended in the disastrous combination of Cambrai. After the fall of Constantinople, the Turkish advance was steadily continued both south and east. Athens surrendered to the Turks in 1457. So did Sinope and Trebizond, and the loss of the Morea in 1462 brought them into immediate collision with the Republic. Venice perfectly understood that a struggle for her possessions in the Levant was inevitable sooner or later. She therefore gladly embraced Pope Pius's proposals for a crusade. But the lamentable failure of the undertaking, and the Pope's death at Ancona, left the Republic to carry on, single-handed, 
a war she had undertaken on the promise and in the expectation of European support. Antonio Michel, a Venetian merchant resident in Constantinople, had warned his government in 1466 that the Sultan was mustering large forces. I take it the fleet will number 200 sail, he says, and everyone here thinks Negroponte its object. He continues in a note of serious warning that matters must not be treated lightly to the deceiving of themselves. The Turk has a way of exaggerating the enemy's strength and arming regardless of expense. Venice had better do the same. This was in 1466. Three years later, the blow was ready to fall, and again Venice received warning through another merchant, Piero Dolphin, resident in Chios. Let the government, he wrote, fortify its places in the Levant and lose no time about it. On this depends the safety of the state, for Negroponte once lost the rest of the Levant is in peril. But Venice, exhausted by the drain of the land wars against Visconti, was unwilling to face another and more terrible campaign by sea unless she were forced to do so. She endeavored to open negotiations at Constantinople on the pretext that she was acting in the name of Hungary. But in 1470, Negroponte fell. The war had already cost considerably over a million ducats, and the government was reduced to suspending either two-thirds or a half of all official salaries, which were over 25 ducats per annum. In spite of this, she rejected, as extravagant, terms of peace offered her in 1476, and faced the struggle once more. Scutari was attacked by the sultan in person, who, in his determination to enter the town, blew besieged and besiegers alike to atoms before his siege guns. But the Republic could not hold out forever unaided. Scutari was at the last extremity. A large army was rumored to be on its way to attack Fruelli. Venice was forced to recognize the facts, and in 1479 she proposed terms of peace. Scutari and all Venetian possessions in the Morea were ceded to the Turk. Venice agreed to pay 10,000 ducats a year for the privileges of trading, and 100,000 in two years as a war indemnity, and received permission to keep an agent, Baelo, in Constantinople. The Peace of 1479 marks an epoch in the history of Venetian relations with the East, and indicates a return to her original policy of peaceable dealings, whenever possible, with the Turk. In truth, the Republic had every reason to complain of the conduct of Europe. After sixteen years of continuous warfare, which she had undertaken on the strength of European promises, Venice concluded a ruinous peace, by which she lost a part of her Levantine possessions, and was reduced to a position of a tributary. Yet, instantly all Europe attacked her for her perfidy to the Christian faith, and the princes of Italy professed to believe that Venice had abandoned the Turkish war merely in order to devote herself to the extension of her power on the mainland. Had she received any support from Europe or Italy, she would never have closed the war with such a balance against herself. In truth, the Republic was too exhausted to continue the struggle. It was not her fault that, the year after the conclusion of the peace, Italy and all Europe were alarmed by the news that the Turks had seized Otranto. This was the inevitable result of the withdrawal of Venice from the struggle. 
a withdrawal in its turn due to the lack of any support from 1481 to 1484, Venetian aggression on the mainland. When invited by the Pope to join an Italian league against the Turk, Venice, mindful of the results which was followed on her acceptance of the last papal invitation, replied that she had made peace with the Sultan and confirmed the suspicion that she was in secret understanding with the Turk. Her next step emphasized the further suspicion that her object in coming to terms with the Turk had been to allow herself a free hand to extend in Italy. We have seen that in 1441, Venice had occupied Ravenna, under protest from Rome, as heir of the Polentani, lords of Ravenna. She now, 1481, attacked the Marquis of Ferrara on the ground that he was infringing a Venetian monopoly by the erection of salt pans at the mouth of the Po. As the territory of Ferrara lay between the Venetian frontier and Ravenna, it looked as if Venice desired to unite her positions in that direction by the acquisition of Ferrara. This policy induced the Duke of Milan, the Pope, and the King of Naples to combine in support of Ferrara against Venice. The war was popular with the Venetians at first, but the strain on both treasury and private purses soon became insupportable, and no success crowned the Venetian arms. The distressed condition of the Republic is described by Malapiero. Payment of the interest on the funds was partially suspended. The shops on the Rialto were mortgaged, private plate and jewelry compulsory called in, salaries cut down. The revenue from the mainland was falling off. The arsenal was nearly empty. Famine and plague were at the door. We shall be forced to sue for peace and restore all we have gained. Malapiero was partially right. Venice was forced to sue for peace, but not till she had taken the ruinous step, which other Italian princes took before and after her, of suggesting to the French that they should make good their claims on certain Italian provinces. Charles VIII, his claim on Naples, the Duke of Orleans, his claim on Milan. Two members of the hostile league, Milan and Naples, were thus threatened in their own possessions with the result that peace was concluded at Bagnolo in 1484. Venice retained Rovigio and Polissini, but was forced to surrender the towns she had taken in Apulia during the course of the war. This invitation to foreigners was fatal to all Italian princes, as events were soon to demonstrate. The five great powers of Italy, Venice, Milan, Florence, the Pope, and Naples were able to hold their own against each other. But the moment the more potent ultra-sovereigns appeared upon the scene, nominally in support of one or other of the Italian states, really in pursuit of their own aggrandizement, the balance was irretrievably upset. The sequence of these events, culminating in the wars of the League of Cambrai, after which Venice never again recovered her commanding place among the political communities of Europe, has been narrated in a previous chapter. End of section 28